0: Good morning, HBC. I wanna thank you for allowing me the the time off of a new year, time to rest and to meet with family and just to say that it is good to be back here, uh, back in this pulpit. It's a strange feeling to be talking to a room uh, full of, not small people, (laughs) to a small crowd and to a camera But it is my prayer that God will use this time anyway and he will use it for the building of his church. If you have your Bible open to the book of Haggai, and if you've never heard of Haggai, it's right towards the end of the Old Testament. It's the third to last book in the Old Testament. It is only two short chapters and we're gonna spend a few weeks in this book I'm gonna read from chapter one through to around verse four or verse five, and we're only gonna look together at the first two verses in this introduction today. Let's read Haggai one from verse one. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel governor of Judah and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you for the fact that while this was written pretty much exactly two and a half thousand years ago, it is still relevant for us today. We thank you that this is true of all your word. We thank you that in in dark times we have your word. We have your guidance. You care about your church. You love us. And I pray, Lord, that, that love would be expressed in this time as your spirit meets with us in different places and builds us. Amen. How New York tried to rebuild its soul There's a title of one of the articles written in 2014, sorry, after the giant skyscraper formerly named Freedom Tower, but which name was changed to the One World Trade Center, finally opened. This is one of a number of articles that came out that year that captured over a decade's worth of frustration and disappointment in the rebuilding project. And the lead of this article reads, when ground zero was finally cleared after the fall of the Twin Towers, New Yorkers trusted that thoughtful, ambitious, urban design would make the city whole again. Why have they been so badly let down? The article explains some of the ugly underbelly of the process of rebuilding, the infighting between architects and politicians the abuse of taxpayers' funds and the politicizing that led to delay after delay. The article spoke of how beauty gave way eventually to pragmatism, the pragmatism of capitalism in the design of the building. Now it's possible that uh, these journalists were just seeing things with a, a cynic's eye, but what really interested me about the article is the description of how this building was built. It was built at first as a stand against terrorism. That was the plan. We won't be cowed. We will rebuild our soul. It was built as an attempt to normalcy, to to strive for normalcy out of carnage. But the building itself became proof that there are some things that you don't ever quite come back from. The paranoia of a changed world was built into that building. The changes weren't wrong, probably good changes, but they were reflective of a changed reality. The staircases were wider so that traffic would be easier. Ventilation was improved so that fire smoke would be less destructive. The columns were designed so that if some failed, the entire building wouldn't collapse, as happened on 9-11, but the building would stand because of clever architecture and weight distribution. Most telling for me is that from far, looking at this building, it it does look like a a beautiful beacon in the Manhattan skyline replacing the Twin Towers. But as you walk into the the first, the ground floor, a cavernous floor, what you notice apparently is a, a lack of natural light For while the the entire building is beautiful, reflective glass, the walls are reflective glass, in the design, the city stepped in and ordered that the base of the building be impervious to truck bomber attacks. And so the base is solidly reinforced concrete with a facade of glass. The building is a monument to a changed world, a world changed by terror. And what was lost would never quite Be recovered. After 9-11, there was no going back to the way it was before. That's kind of how we feel right now, isn't it? In the middle of COVID. What does it mean to find a new normal? What does it mean to get back to normal? It was a similar experience for God's people in Haggai's day. The return to the land of Judah and to Jerusalem after 70 years in exile was somewhat anticlimactic. Now just to catch you up, it's important that you understand where we are in Haggai in the history that led to this. There were 12 tribes of the people of Israel and during the reigns of Saul and David and Solomon, they were one people, one united nation. But under Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, the the kingdom was split into two and the 10 northern tribes followed Jeroboam and became the nation of Israel. With the capital in Samaria and the two southern tribes, their capital was in Jerusalem, the nation of Judah. The northern kingdom quickly fell always to idolatry. And there was bad king after bad king after bad king. And they were conquered eventually in the 8th century by Assyria around 720 BC. The southern kingdom was more of a a roller coaster, a good king here and a bad king there but generally it was degeneration until ultimately they didn't heed the call to repent. They were conquered finally in 586 by Babylon. Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed and the people of Judah were led into exile. This had been prophesied before that the exile would last for 70 years and remarkably even in Isaiah 44 verse 28 it was prophesied some 200 years before the event, the rise of Cyrus. He would be the conqueror of Babylon and he would be the one to decree the rebuilding of the temple. So deliverance for the people of God was planned long before their punishment. So Alec Machia, common Cyrus, stepped onto the world stage without any idea of the only God whose tool he was to be. Cyrus, the, the Medo-Persian king, conquered Babylon in 539, and the first return with his decree to rebuild the temple was made in 538. And about 50,000 Jews returned to Jerusalem, excited, in earnest, and enthusiasm. with enthusiasm the rebuilding began. But dreams of a golden age quickly grew dim. The land that they returned to was not what some remembered. It had been ravaged by army after army traveling through. Ezra 3 tells of how the trumpet sound and the shouts of praise. He is good for his steadfast love endures forever as they build. Soon was mixed with loud weeping as those who had seen the first temple and, and looked around them at the, the site of the second temple knew that there was a glory that they lost, that would not be returned. Instead of a land bursting forth in abundance, they experienced drought after drought and food shortage through that. And the biggest problem was opposition from people in the land. In Ezra 4, it describes how these people, through deception, tried to get the people of Judah to allow them to help in the rebuilding process, Uh, apparently not for the glory of God, but for their own purposes. The leaders in Jerusalem saw through this attempt and refused. And so those people turned to persecution. Ezra 4 verse 4 says, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. Where deception failed, the tactic of discouragement and fear succeeded. So Sinclair Ferguson says, there are many weapons that may fail against the building of the church in any part of the world, but a weapon that frequently succeeds is the weapon of discouragement. And So not long after they returned, two years in, the work of rebuilding the temple falls to the ground, and the sound of hammer fades from the temple precinct. Hope gives way to frustration and despair. Their euphoria is pummeled out of them by struggle and the wind is taken out of their sails. They're tired, they're few, surely too few for the work required. And a danger sprouts in the camp, spiritual paralysis that so often comes from discouragement and disappointment. Maybe you have felt it, that spiritual numbness and paralysis. For the Jews, where is our our golden age? Surely it shouldn't be this hard. How often isn't the shallowness of our zeal revealed in the fires of struggle and opposition? And when zeal is snuffed out, we grow lax and selfish. There's always been a danger to the people of God that comes in the face of trial. And so for 16 years, the work ceases on the temple and by 520 BC, 18 years after their return, the temple of the Lord still lies in ruins. They pick up the pieces of their personal lives, they rebuild their houses and they leave the temple. The one thing that mattered the most, they leave it derelict. You may be wondering, why have I chosen this obscure prophet in the Old Testament? Why Haggai? To be honest, I cannot think of a better book than this for our time right now. COVID has disrupted our lives, it's disrupted the life of the church once again. It's placed pressures on us that weren't there before. Businesses have the extra hurdles of regulations in an already strained economy. School teachers who struggled for all of last year trying to learn how to teach online are having to get up and go again. Learners who had a harrowing time trying to figure out how to study long distance have to go again. Fewer people have to do The same amount of work, office hours have become flexible. The the lines between home and work have been blurred. And the financial security of many has disappeared. And so as we pour our energy into rebuilding what has been lost in our lives, trying to get to some kind of new normal, the danger for the church is that we would lose sight of what really matters in this time. Jesus said to us in Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. We are in danger as they were of losing sight of the kingdom during the disruption of trial. This time has become even a challenge to our biblical understanding of church, of gathering, of ecclesiology, Last year, when we were allowed to meet, half our number returned. For those in the room, it felt a little bit like Temple II, and the glory lost. We've had to put on hold important evangelistic ministries like Quest for Truth, a missions trip to Kenya, even our gathering. We need to find a way this year to rebuild and to be careful to set our hearts on eternal things, to choose sacrifice over fear. That's why I have chosen Hagar. When God's people let their hands drop to discouragement, when they sink into spiritual complacency, they chose. the the people in Haggai's day, they chose comfort over obedience. And so God raised up a prophet. And his words are as relevant today as they were two and a half thousand years ago. And so does my prayer that this little book, this minor prophet with a major message would stir our hearts to the truth that COVID can disrupt the world, but not the kingdom. Christ is over all and in all. Christ in our prosperity and Christ in our famine. Christ in our health and in our suffering. And today, Christ our greatest and first allegiance. Haggai 1 verse one, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is momentous. This is the first time in post-exilic, uh, the post-exilic era that the authoritative voice of the prophet, the authoritative voice of God is heard amongst the people. This is a big deal. For so long, all that they have known is exile, doom and gloom, no temple, no land, and they come back to a land of trouble. The work stops for 16 years, and there is nothing, no word. Is this the end? Is this failure to restart the end? Is God done with them? Decisively, through Haggai, the answer is no, Here's a, a God who pursues his people. is the God who can be known. He seeks them out when they are on the brink of another disaster. And he comes in the power of his word to stir up a new generation of people. Now what's amazing about Haggai, we don't often have this in the books of the Bible, is how precise we can be about the dating of the book. He dates the reception of each of his oracles with reference to the reign of King Darius. And so we can compare his words with over a 100 other ancient texts to know pretty much to the day when this occurred, according to our calendar. The prophecies of the entire book of Haggai took place over a space of 15 weeks. 29th of August to the 18th of December 520 BC, less than four months is his ministry. Now while we know the precise dating of the book, we know almost nothing about Haggai himself. There's no word about him before, no word about him after his four month ministry. His name comes from the root word for festival in the Hebrew language. So we think maybe it's likely he was born during one of the Jewish festivals. He's not listed in Ezra as one of those who returned, and so some have wondered, was he maybe a child at that time, which would make him a pretty young prophet? Though on the other hand, Jewish tradition sees him as one of those who had seen temple one, and so he would be old. The truth is, we don't know. Not even his father is mentioned, as was common in this time. We know the father of Zerubbabel and Joshua, they're mentioned. Zerubbabel is in the line of King David, the heir apparent to the throne, though he is governor here at the time. Joshua is in the line of Aaron, the high priest. Haggai is only known locally as the prophet. And the most important ministry of his life spans only four months. He's used by God and then he fades from view. Zechariah becomes prominent after him. It's amazing how God does this from time to time. Every now and then he raises somebody up for a specific season and for a specific purpose, perhaps with a special anointing for that time. I was reading this week of um, the preacher David Morgan. He was a Welsh preacher during the the 19th century revival. There was nothing special about his preaching. And he slogged on and on in in ministry and in preaching. It was very ordinary, but he, he wished to be more effective. He yearned for greater ability. And there was a day where this actually came during the revival. He he says it like this, one day I, I went to bed, David Morgan as usual. The next morning I woke up feeling like a lion. And he preached like a lion for two years with great fervency, and his church saw many, many conversions. And he says, one night I went to bed still feeling like a lion and woke up David Morgan again. And he had 15 years of ordinary faithful ministry after that. This is, it seems, like Haggai. We we don't know much about him, but that doesn't really matter, that's not the point. In fact, it proves a point. Haggai is not about Haggai, but about the power of God's word. Despite the brevity of his ministry, and the obscurity of the prophet. There is hardly actually in Scripture any prophet with more immediate fruit to his ministry, more success. Alec Martyr says this Haggai left for us all he felt we needed to know, that he enjoyed the highest honor known to humankind. He was the Lord's prophet, the Lord's messenger with the Lord's commission. What's amazing is that though he's obscure before and he disappears after this four-month ministry, there are very few passages in all of Scripture where the divine authority of the human writer's words is more consistently emphasized than in the book of Haggai. He uses the phrases, thus says the Lord of hosts and the word of the Lord came and similar terms over 20 times in only 38 verses of this book. So Haggai steps into a particular stage in the history of God's people with an urgency that we hardly see anywhere else. Haggai knows that God wants to stir up his people with the power of his word as the very instrument. He's saying, I don't matter, but God's got a message that you need to hear. And Haggai is speaking still today the word that stirred up a generation bears weight still today. I have a, a great struggle right now in that we are not gathered for this, this series. It is not the same. If you think that we lose nothing in the loss of the gathering, if you think that the, the technology can replace it, you are mistaken. But my prayer is that God would use this anyway to create a fire for his people, a fire for the gathering. You should be burning in your hearts to be in, in the house of the Lord today. My prayer is that he would use it for a fire, for kingdom work and the work of the church. Today, I just wanna focus for the rest of the time that we have on this one line, the first of six oracles in the book of Haggai. And it's a word that couldn't be more relevant. Haggai one verse two, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Not my people, he says these people. When the prophet is speaking, that's the first sign of trouble. Now is not the time. Tell God he can wait. Did they have a lot going on? Yes. They were struggling with famine and the rebuilding was expensive. The opposition that they had even came in the form of an edict from the former king Cambyses, Artaxerxes in Ezra 4, to cease the work of rebuilding. The opposition was strong and yet it wasn't an excuse for Haggai. So lest we look at the season that, that we are in and say that there is nothing that we can do for the Lord right now, unless we say that the kingdom and the church is on hold and we put these things on the back burner until the dust settles, till things are safer, lest we say it, they had greater excuse than we do today. Are we going to say God can wait? Now, why? Why was the rebuilding of the temple so important? What is the, the big deal? We should ask the question why does it matter so much? There are at least two reasons. It was a bigger deal than New York's attempt to rebuild its soul in rebuilding the One World Trade Center, a bigger deal than a statement that says, We will not be cowed by terrorists. Firstly, from God's standpoint, the temple in that time was the place of his glory and the place of his sacrifice. In Haggai 1, verse 8, it says, Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. They were a people of the covenant. A people not their own, a people belonging to God among the nations for the purpose of his glory. Look at the temple, it lies in ruins. Has God gone out of business? Ezekiel 37, verse 28 says, Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in the midst of them forever. That was the point of the temple from that standpoint. Church, are we thinking in this day and in this time about our own interests, about our own glory, about our own houses, or are we driven by this hope that whatever comes, may he still be glorified in his church? Or is God's glory hold among us? From their standpoint, the temple was the place of God's presence. Michael Stead comments saying, this is not just a catastrophe of a building that's been knocked down. This is a catastrophe of the absence of God. Alec Machia comments, he says, the house was not desired for itself as a sort of lucky charm. The house was the outward form of the real presence of the Lord among his people to refuse to build the house was at best saying that it did not matter whether the Lord was present with them. At worst, it was presuming on divine grace that the Lord would live with his people even though they willfully refused to fulfill the condition of his indwelling that he had laid down. It had amounted to seeking grace but refusing the means of grace. Not to build the house was not to want the Lord as and for himself. The temple in ruins is a statement of what they treasured and where their hearts were. It was a statement of priorities. Listen, church, the way that we live our lives in this time is going to reveal how much we want God. We are being pressed, and this moment will reveal much about the treasure and the treasures of our hearts. When we look back upon this time or we look back and say that was the time when many, many were lulled into a setting of comfort over obedience, safety over risk. May it not be HBC. May this time rather shake us into dependence upon him. May it shake us into prayer. May it shake us into risk and kingdom orientation. Discouragement had led to complacency in Jerusalem to the point where they said, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Not one of those who returned would have said, it doesn't matter if the temple gets rebuilt or not. They knew it was important. For 66 years, there had been no temple. Imagine how many times they had prayed in the land of Babylon, surrounded by other temples and false worship. God, deliver us, restore the glory of your presence. Now 18 years back, somehow they are convinced and they've convinced themselves that it could wait. God can wait. And worse, they said it with an air of piety. We want to, but God just hasn't opened up the doors. Sinclair Ferguson comments, he says, their outward piety masked an inner indifference, their spiritual language masked an inner contempt, and their show of wisdom masked a spirit of procrastination. The time has not yet come. When it comes to a commandment of God to build the temple and keep it, you don't need to pray about what God's will is. You just need to do it to speak spiritually about your disobedience and your indifference is to mask a deep sickness in your Christian life, that's what the prophet is saying. If there is an er area in your life where you are delaying obedience to the Lord, let Haggai's word speak to you. We need to be careful of the temptation that says, God can wait. I know I need to Teach my kids. I know I need to pray with them. I know I need to share my faith with my co-workers. I know I need to prioritize my time for service and my money for giving. I know I need help in fighting the sin. But not today. Beware the attitude of not today. As Saint Augustine reflects, as his heart state had been, he said, Give me chastity, but not yet. I want to be wholly consecrated to the Lord, but not yet. I want to serve, but not yet. I want to surrender to the one whom I've been putting off all this time, but not yet. I remember last year, in the beginning of the year, the first song, I think it was, that Noah learned from uh, his school here, Simon Peter's school. I have no clue what the tune is supposed to be, bless his heart but he shouted it from the bath over and over again, this line, it is the time to seek the Lord. It is the time to seek the Lord. Church, it is the time right now to seek him. It is the time today to serve. The kingdom of heaven is not on lockdown. When Jesus walked the earth, thanks in part to the ministry of Haggai, there was a temple, a completed temple to come to the reality, setting foot upon the shadow. And in Christ we see the heart that we are supposed to have. Zeal for the house of the Lord consumed him. He was zealous for God's glory to be shining out. And we ought to be zealous today for that same thing. Are you zealous for the glory of the Lord? We are zealous for the church because we are zealous for the glory of Christ. I know that conditions are adverse. It is difficult to be kingdom-minded when you feel like the world is falling apart, when you're tired, when you're looking ahead and there's no end in sight. The Christian life is hard at the best of times. The fight against sin is grueling at the best of times. We believe things in this day and age that are increasingly setting us at odds with the world. It is easy after a year that we've had to feel the heaviness of our calling, especially when it's marked by isolation and possibly discouragement. Sometimes it is easier to give up. That is true of those who today are worrying where is the next paycheck gonna come from? for those who are wondering how am I I gonna balance work and a crazy school year with my kids? And the truth is in trial, we can become numb to the calling of God over our lives and adverse to the risk of giving ourselves to his kingdom. We need to lift our eyes, we need to look to him, to look to Christ, look to the reward Paul said in Galatians 6:9, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. We don't know what this year will bring economically. Will some of us lose our businesses? Some of us will probably lose our lives. But we cannot be consumed with fear or with our own problems and relegate the matters of the church and the kingdom and his mission to the background. We cannot put it all on the back burner saying, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Haggai you yet to say, there is no time like the present. God is sovereign and reigning and good, and the promise of glory is not threatened by trouble. It is only enhanced and made more real. We will not give up. We must stand and rebuild. We must give and sacrifice. We must pray and seek the Lord. We will not be shaken, for we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Hillcrest Baptist Church. Let us pray. God, we need wisdom, we need help. We need courage, we need vision. Give us your spirit, a spirit not of timidity, but of boldness and trust and courage and faith. Help us to be brave in a dark time, Lord. Fill us with fire for your mission Make us clever, Lord, that we may know how to be of relevance to those in our our workplace who are hurting and struggling and confused. May we see this as a time not just of crisis, but of opportunity, Lord. We are asking that you would build your kingdom here, even now. We are asking that your church would be a beacon even now. Do not abandon us, but be with us and make us brave and help us to follow you. Amen.